Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. For more information and to donate online, go to 3cr.org.au. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. 3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning. Welcome to Tuesday Breakfast. It's Tuesday the 23rd of April. My name's George. We're missing a couple of our key Tuesday Breakfast regular presenters this morning. Unfortunately, Anya's on a little road trip and Lauren and Ayan are taking a little bit of a break. But fortunately, I've got some lovely people here in the studio <laughs> with me. I've got Amelia Portellas, who is actually doing 3CR training and will be joining a breakfast show very soon. Hello, how's everyone? Good, thank <laughs> you for joining us. Thanks for having me. <laughs> and Chris, Woo. cracky reporter. Yeah. Been doing our headlines yeah. for about a month now. Yeah, saving correspondent. Saving bacon. 3CR, yeah. <laughs> cracky mm-hmm. and 3CR yeah. correspondent. Yeah, put that on the resume <laughs> now, I think. Yeah. <laughs> How are you, Joe? Yeah, pretty good. good. But, um... I think having the Easter break makes you a bit daisy. Mm. Is that how you, both of you feel? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. No, a bit too much socialising. Yeah? Yeah, definitely. Mm. Yeah, I can do it with less. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> definitely. No enough, more friends. Get rid of them. <laughs> yeah. Not enough joy for a while. Yeah. <laughs> it's time to get busy. Serious. Mm. <laughs> well, I guess, yeah. Speaking of getting away from joy, I guess oh. that's a segue into headlines. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um... Yeah, sadly, uh, two Australian citizens have been named in the Sri Lankan blasts uh, that occurred on Sunday, and there was, there was another one yesterday that um, thankfully wasn't. Uh, the one yesterday wasn't deadly. It was. It was a. Um, uh, they discovered a bomb that went off, and it didn't. Um, but there were, no one was injured in it. Um, but yeah, more to the point. Um, two Australians, uh, I believe their name, and apologies if I'm pronouncing this wrong. Manik Suriyarachi and her 10-year-old daughter Alexia. Mm-hmm. This was an Australian uh, Sri Lankan businesswoman. Um, were amongst the 290 people. Uh, there are still a lot of questions about the blasts. Uh, people are saying the cabinet minister, cabinet spokesman said that uh, intelligence agencies warned about something like this could happen uh, about the 4th of April, and it was ignored. Uh, that's this person's words. He's saying that the Prime Minister wasn't informed. Um, they're saying that it's there's, they suspect that it's a, it's a small minority hate group, um, terrorist group. Uh, that, but, yeah, they're still investigating, mm. sadly. Um, that's uh, yeah ongoing story, sadly. Uh, the closer to home, closer to Australian, a bit more, uh, less, less serious, I guess, um, would be, uh, 
Barnaby Joyce has had a truly incredible interview with ABC's Patricia Carvelis. Um, again, I apologise if I'm saying her last name wrong. Uh, but he's, um, it, it's, it's a very long, uh, untoward story. It's very difficult to, to surmise, but it's about an $80 million water buyback on the Murray Darling, uh, in about 2017. It's got links to Barnaby Joyce was the, uh, agriculture minister back then. Uh, it was from a company that had ties to the current energy minister. There's a lot of, um, a lot of questions here, a lot of things to unpack, but the, the big story today in a lot of newspapers are that he just, he had a really, like he just spoke over Patricia. He was, um, he was yelling about labor. It was really something. It, it, I think not it was, happy. Uh, it was, he was not happy, but she, like, it was, there's, yeah, there's a, a lot of fun to be had on Twitter about this interview. Like, it was supposed to go for 10 minutes, went for 30 minutes, because every time she asked a question, he just answered something else and accused her of things and oh was screaming about, like, you know, that's not the question. He said that, like, five times, and she's like, that's actually the question I'm asking you. <laughs> she was like, it is the question. He's like, no, no, that's irrelevant, and it was just yelling about Labour, Labour, Queensland, I, I don't know. It's, um, yeah, it's a really big story. <laughs> Good time. Good. Really, I, I'll have to listen back because it's it takes you out of body, out of body experience. Uh, but it's an exploding story. It kind of uh, a lot of an independent journalists have actually been covering it. Broke it last week on Twitter. This came okay. up. Okay, yeah, I was going to ask who actually yeah. broke this story. Well, it's a combination. I um, I I I'm really sorry. I forgot her name now. But there's a there's a lot of in, independent journals on Twitter who have like I know Michael West, who's got his own website. He used to be a Fairfax correspondent. Uh, there's another, uh, there are people at the Australia Institute, which is like a progressive think tank. Uh, they, they published a report in like August last year, I think, um, that was, uh, tied to a lot of this, that did a lot of the groundwork. And then there's been all these like, t- it's actually Twitter threats, which is really interesting. It's yeah. like, this is almost just Twitter journalism. Yeah. People saying, putting it all out in like tweets and tweets and tweets. And like, that's this woman. And she kind of got temporarily, she got threatened. Some people got threatened by this and by the current energy minister Angus Taylor with defamation, uh, which uh, just for sharing this tweet. Yeah. You know, it's this very unheard of um, uh, for this level of um, yeah. That those threats were unheard of. The fact that it all kind of started on Twitter and it's been growing, and then slowly the, the project were the first like the first massive news corporation. They didn't break the story, but they got the journos on and did a really good job last Thursday mm. of, like, a, distilling a very complicated story into, like, a 10-minute package. They they crushed it. And then over the weekend, all these other stories have come out, and um, it's... Uh, yeah, today there's been a bunch of other ones. Like, the Herald Sun put a piece out that was actually about this company that is, you know, um, nobody knows. It's owned by a Cayman's Island offshoot. Uh, Australian irrigation company, I think, Eastern Australian Irrigation, uh, that is um, apparently donated to the Liberal Party. <laughs> Coincidence. Coincidentally, that's all we can say at this point, but they donated in 2012-2013. So there's, um, and then there's, yeah, there's going to be a million different things to tackle there. Uh, oh, just news headlines for the third. <laughs> the third one is that uh, Clive Palmer, sadly, is... Apparently, this is just news poll, opinion polls, which come and go, but he is apparently making quite a bit of a dent into, uh, he's been spending 30, I think $30 million in advertising around Australia, those big ugly yellow boards, um, and apparently it's paid off, and all these opinion polls are coming out that's all these marginal seats around the country that he's actually got between 15 to 12% uh, approval amongst Mm. people, which... 
I mean, that's that's some seats. It's small. Some five percent. It's still pretty decent. Um, twelve percent. That's almost like. I mean, nationally, that's like more than the Greens, but that's this is just in one seat, so that's not. I'm not trying to say he's as big as the Greens, but he has uh, put a ton of money into this, and he's gotten a bit of. People are suspecting that you know, and this this these things come and go. Uh, there's no guarantee either way, but there's there's a worry or a concern or a suggestion that he's gonna um, his preferences will be crucial for some of these really marginal seats, which is like there's one in Perth, one in. North Queensland, one here in Melbourne, Deakin, I think it is. Um, uh, people are thinking, yeah, are there his preferences? He might get a Senate spot, in which case he might have a crucial Senate Senate uh, vote. Um, yeah, thirty million dollars. They're suspecting by the time of the election, he'll he'll have spent. He's estimated that he'll spend fifty five million dollars on these giant ugly it's so much money and he still owes all these workers from Queensland nickels seven. He owes nickel workers uh seven million dollars in back back pay sorry i'm I'm going a little over um but yeah he's he's owed these people money for months and he's he hasn't paid it so it's just very uh interesting that he's got this much money to spend definitely and then linked to this broader conversation around the the ways that politicians are allowed to spend massive amounts of money in election campaigns it's incredible and what does this mean for a democratic society yeah you can just spend it's 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 literally Clive Palmer literally was just similar to Trump, I guess. He was just a really rich guy who just threw money at this thing, and he tried it back in. He's already done it before. He he just bought himself a bunch of um, uh, Senate spots. It's you know. Are there free reigns for for spending money on on your campaign? Uh, I think that there might. I'm not actually sure. I'd have to double check. I think it's almost free reign until there are like. There's for, for advertising. I think it's kind of free reign. Mm-hmm. I think like donations. There are certain there are new. There are now certain things that like there are there are. Um, uh, I'd have to double check, but there are yeah. There are like slowly campaign financing is so dodgy and it doesn't. There are all these problems around real time. You might only know a year after an election who donated yeah. to the company. Yeah. As in, uh, you know, and all these you hear stories of, of people just like. I know a Tasmanian election last year was like flooded with cash from the gambling industry, but that wasn't made clear because campaign financing doesn't require it until like nine months after that. So and don't we didn't still know. have? I, like I, I believe we still have a big chunk of money that is still outstanding in terms of where it came from from previous elections. Yeah, yeah. Well, we own. I'm. I think you're right. I think like we only. Uh, I'm not sure if I mean the Liberal Party money that the Liberal Party received. I think it's like. It was in the news like a, about a month ago. Yeah. Yeah. Is that correct? I don't know. Oh, I possibly. Like, yeah. I um, I'd have to double check. I'm sorry. I'm not. A, I'm actually not. <laughs> sorry. No, no, no. It's really interesting. I just I feel like that's that's not um something I can guarantee mm-hmm. a, yeah. an answer on right now. Yeah. But it is. It's so dodgy. There's like there's all this you know, and a lot of it's like you you don't have to declare certain things and you know. Yeah. But yeah, clearly Clive Palmer can spend thirty million dollars on giant great big boulder ugly orange billboards around the country and just buy himself some seats. He hasn't announced really any... I mean, all of his policies are, are nationalistic stuff, but it's um, uh, it's very dry. None of the ads have policies on them. It's just his face and thumbs up. So, yeah. I guess that's effective and yeah, message. I guess so. People know the song on YouTube and stuff. So. Mm. We, or I think he has put policies out, but yeah. Um... Thank you, Chris. Oh, thanks, <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> thanks, Chris. Oh. oh. <laughs>
Sorry, I apologize for that. The ending music for the headlines. <laughs> yeah, um. yeah, that's that's a signal that I'm done. No, that's a phone call. Who calls me at seven a.m.? I'm very surprised. So we Sorry. might go to a song and then we'll come back and talk a little bit more about elections and yeah, that'd be interesting. So this is a track that um, it's by Aretha Franklin and I discovered it actually a couple of days ago. I had never heard it before, so I think it's a pretty good one. I play it now. It's called "Are You Leaving Me." Before the government started turning back boats in 2013, around 10,000 Tamils arrived seeking refuge in Australia, fleeing from the Sri Lankan government. On Saturday, 4th of May, we invite you to a film screening of No Fire Zone at 6.45pm at RMIT Cinema Theatre. The cinema is located at Building 80, 455 Swanston Street, opposite the RMIT tram stop. This award-winning documentary about the war helps answer why Tamils fled to places like Australia and why it is not safe for them to return. This event is co-hosted by Tamil Refugee Council and Dr Liam Ward from RMIT's School of Media and Communication, supported by 3CR. Subscribe now at 3cr.org.au. We Need to Pay the Rent is a fundraiser for warriors of the Aboriginal resistance featuring the Pretty Littles, Worst Nurse, Ute Root, No Sister, Face Face and a heap more. Come join us on Kulin Nation land to give back. It's well overdue. We need to pay the rent. Saturday, May the 18th at the Tote from 4pm. Tickets $20. Available from the Tote website, thetotehotel.com. Free or discounted tickets for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Contact organisers online to arrange. A 3CR supporter. You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR. I just swallowed a massive bit of toast just before. <laughs> Good hustle. Going down my, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> my name's George, <laughs> and I'm joined in the studio by Chris. Hello, George. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Thanks for being here. So we are now talking elections. Yeah, Everything elections. we know. You wanted to start by discussing one particular matter. Yes, yeah, well, we, we alluded to it a little earlier about the um, the water buyback scheme, but that's uh, it's really kind of blowing up at the moment. The um, Yeah, it's it's going to dominate politics at least for the next few days. These things often, there's a, there's a lot of scandals out there, folks. There's a lot, a, lot of, um, <laughs> a lot of things that kind of just get swept under the radar, and this one, it's it's been around at least since last Thursday. Um, and a, a, as I said, it's a... Um, it, well, it really was back in 2017 when Joyce, uh, he was the water minister, agriculture minister, and uh, the the Department of Agriculture bought 28 gigalitres of water from Eastern Australia agriculture in a, a non-open tender process, which are always kind of strange because we don't have all the facts. And that's what a lot of the things right now are that people, Labor's just calling for all these documents to be released because a lot of... What, it, what has been released has been heavily redacted, so we don't know everything. We don't know who owns the uh, the company, the parent company, Eastern 
I'll just double check the name. It's a Cayman Islands based, you know, tax haven kind of a company called, uh, uh, where is it? Sorry. Um, Oh, yeah, Eastern Australia Irrigation, yeah, based in the Cayman Islands. Right. Uh, and they basically got $80 million for this water that they were... There's, there's a bit of miscommunication about the fact that... And this is where I do think the Australia Institute may be... And I think they're aware of this, that they're very intelligent people, but I think that they characterise <laughs> it on the project as a um, as useless water, and it's not... It's kind of... Oh, like, it's that's a fair claim, but it's also that the... What the government was paying for was not because it was the it was to return flood water to the environment, which meant that they were paying this company theoretically to get rid of these machines, basically that would capture water that you know it only happens once in a decade anyway that these rivers flood and the water goes over the over the land. So this is like top water. There's a different saying. There's different uh, prices for different amounts of water and stuff and. What, when it flooded the region, that had ecological benefits, like it would go back to the environment, but this company was capturing that water. So that was, whenever that did flood, it would, they would capture these machines, and theoretically, the purchase would get rid of those machines and return it to the environment. It's part of the buyback scheme because humans have, I shouldn't say humans, uh, white Australia has basically screwed up the Murray Darling. Uh, and this is where uh, there's a buy, you know, buyback schemes basically to return water to the environment. So the the money theoretically was going to go somewhere, even though it wasn't. The government didn't actually like capture the water; it was supposed to be returned to the environment. But there is uh, one of the many unanswered questions, and this is why. Sorry, there's so many different ways to tackle this that there are questions over uh, what the original price, because they paid eighty million dollars for this, and that didn't include the uh, that reportedly didn't include getting rid of those machines, which initially was supposed to. Plus, that's more money than the company asked, which is one of the major questions here. Eighty million—they did not ask for eighty million dollars. Normally, when you haggle with a company, uh, the government haggles with a company. You say, "Ah, oh, we'll bring it down a bit. We think it's worth this. You think it's that." The government, for some reason, and there's like there's some explanation that it may have like ultimately been more than what the company initially pitched. But it is weird that they asked. For so you know, for this amount of money, and the government said, "How about we give you some more money?" And that's kind of one of the questions here. The other one is that, um, well, one of the other ones is that uh, uh, the company is is connected to the current energy minister. He's not connected to it now, uh, but there are questions over when he left as director of that Cayman's Island company and there's like there's some tax questions around this as well there are always tax questions that i do not understand <laughs> but there's like that's another angle to this there are questions over his involvement and someone who was not just him but his uh, like staff members and business associates and there's, there's questions over exactly where all this lines up um and basically as i said earlier joyce was on the abc yesterday he was yelling that the queensland labor government you know, he was kind of like pushing this all onto the Labour government, the state government, and also for some reason the previous Gillard government. I don't know why. Um, but the Queensland government, there is there is a kind of a thread here in that they did suggest that the federal government, they did apparently, according to the Courier Mail today, they did um, ask the federal government, hey, could you buy this water? Queensland needs this water. Could you buy it from this company? However, they didn't have any say in the final negotiation. So that's where these kind of like stories differ. Joyce puts it all on them. They've kind of come out to say, hey, we had nothing to do with this. 
according to the Korean Mail, there is a bit of truth in both, where, like, technically the government, the state government did write to the federal government, but the federal government negotiated all the deals. They've held all these documents back, which Labor right now basically just saying release all the documents so we know who's or who owns the company. Because mm-hmm. right now the question is who benefited from all, from $80 million. It was, it's spoken about as the largest amount ever purchased for this buyback scheme. Uh, so it's kind of, yeah, kind of blown up for a number, a number of reasons. Plus there's a million, there's so many other angles. There's like, there's theories that it's linked to this superannuation fund called the Future Th- Fund, not theories, uh, reports of senior government officials mm-hmm. saying these things to the New Daily last night. But as, yeah, as I say, I'm not, like, there, don't there, know all the facts yet. I, we don't know all the facts yet, and it's very, it's gonna go on for a little while. So, um, hopefully I've given some idea of what it is. It's just very complicated as well. It's, yeah. it's like levels yeah, of. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, and right. people are saying certain things on Twitter, which arguably isn't true. So, you know. Yeah, true. But it is interesting what, I guess what you were saying before during headlines, the ways that social media can be used to put pressure on particular stories if they're not being reported in the mainstream media and then a bunch of citizen journalists or activist journalists, independent journalists are coming out and saying, this is an issue, I've read about this, let's talk about this, and then it becomes, you know, then it leads to something that happens on radio with Barnaby Joyce and you you can't ignore, there's no gatekeeping anymore, you can't ignore that something is, is, you know, that the people, that the public is worried about a particular thing. Absolutely. Like it was, it's been trending for a week under hashtag Watergate, which is very Oh, yeah, oh, I have seen it. So, yeah. Yeah. So right. they've finally brought the gate thing full circle. Yes. There's all these jokes that, that like, is started awesome. there. We've called it Utegate <laughs> and all these other stupid things. And now we finally get back to Watergate. So this right? is an investigative, yeah. Yeah. And so you're so right. It's all, it's very social media heavy. Yeah. It's also interesting that like a kind of hip-ish news program like The Project, which does phenomenal work anyway, but it is very cool that they were kind of the first, first like, you know, legit news organizations to grab this because they were really? smart enough to be like, hey, some other, I think BuzzFeed reported on the defo threats because they did. It was interesting that the energy minister threatened Twitter users yeah. for retweeting. It wasn't even saying because, anything. It was for, re, you know, yeah. for tweeting links to this thread. Well, I guess that's what people, I don't think that public understands that anyone can defame someone. You don't have to be a journalist. You don't have to. You, you can literally yeah. just be on social media. You can defame someone. Obviously, someone needs to have a lot of money to pursue that, and they would have to feel like they were definitely in the right. But that's yeah, really interesting. It's very easy to sue for defamation in yeah. Australia. I should be more careful. <laughs> it's, um... Oh, yeah, <laughs> well, <what> said. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a good journalist. Don't sue me. Yeah, no. Um, it's very... It's really... Australian's defamation laws are the worst in the world. Yeah. It is very easy to sue here. So, yeah, watch out. Um... But if you're, you know, if you're being, if you're truthful and you can substantiate your claims, yeah. you're fine. Which these people have. Most of the journalists working this. But yeah, as you, like all independent, all independent journals, the project was smart enough to say this is a really interesting story, and uh, that yeah, they're doing phenomenal work right now, and it's pretty cool that they broke it. And then days yeah. later, places like Sydney Morning Herald, the Australian, I'm not even sure if they they may have eventually gone on it, but because yeah, because it's escalated, Barnaby Joyce finally got got talked to and it was seriously I cannot stress enough how funny this interview is half an hour of your time it's <sighs> worth it sounds like it would be a stressful listen but also it's a kind of very funny I mean <laughs> you feel for Patricia does an incredible job of like just trying to like talk to this guy who does not have any interest in like being a subject I think it's really exciting because 
I, like I, I tutor in journalism, and we just studied investigative journalism la- last week. Oh, and awesome! We, see, we look at Watergate, and we talk about these specific examples of investigative work that are that you know that are, are actually really exciting. It's mm. incredible that journalists can, and in this example as well, it doesn't have to be people that have a lot of power in the media. Yeah. It can be anyone can find out a piece of information and then bring it to the public and say, "We need to investigate this." And, totally. the, and and people in power can be held to account, and this role of of journalism, I think, is 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 so crucial in society, mm. and it's like a really exciting thing. Yeah, yeah. and don't underestimate like a hashtag because yeah. you get it big enough, you get it going for a week, you hit the right journalists. They have to. They'll be like, if I don't ask it, I'll look like a bad journalist. Yeah, you, it's it's kind of happened within the space of a week. This stuff has really snowballed and. There are all these, there are so, going to be so many more revelations coming out as well. I cannot stress how many headlines. There was like three different exclusives this morning, and wow. like it's not the end yeah. of it yet. So, yeah, looking to like different different outlets, I guess, for news sources, not like your you know your main main companies and things like that. Main main broadcasting stations is yeah. really really cool. Yeah, I cannot recommend a little a little website called Crikey.com, mm. I would say has, ah. is, is good if you're interested in independent yeah. media. But also like Yeah, and yeah. then the flow on effect to Twitter and to social media and things like that. It's so like it's such a crucial outlet I think for yeah. for us to to be able to access news and totally. Yeah, and it's yeah. um it's also a good place to like tackle politicians sometimes as well. Because yeah. sometimes you'll you'll get lucky and they'll reply, or then, you know, <laughs> they can be more insecure than they seem. But they'll they'll get back to you. They'll just def- yeah they'll yeah up for defamation. It's happened. I've got I've gotten every now and then a couple. But yeah. Wow. Yeah. You can be sitting at your computer like whoa. Wow, they actually saw my terrible tweet. Yeah. No, it's um it's a force, you know. Yeah. Yeah, I think Good Twitter is bad. definitely a specific um, form of social media where that is, where, where that is possible. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, because it is really geared to political conversations and it takes away a lot of the kind of the, um, I guess the, the, I guess the ways that Instagram and Facebook are more about your self-image and your personal life, but Twitter is very much focused on what are your ideas and what are your thoughts and the ways that the conversations can be had. In mm. that. Say it in 160 characters right now. Yeah. yeah. Hashtag. Yeah, totally. <laughs> it's... Um, yeah, it's pretty wild. It's mm. like, I don't think people have caught up with how powerful it can be because mm. it obviously can be used for fake news and terrible things as well. Mm. But, uh, you know, if you get the blue tick or whatever it is, that yeah. like if you get the people who like you can trust and you can be like, this is a good journalist, uh, follow them and see what, mm. yeah, yeah, it can um, be huge. So I guess we should... We had another sort of topic we wanted to discuss in relation to the elections. Yes. We were interested in kind of unpacking preferences and voting and without endorsing any parties, obviously, but in Absolutely. terms of what, is it, you know, what does it mean to put your vote to a major party versus a non-major party and how it feeds to other parties and is there information you can provide to our listeners around yeah, that? Yeah, I would love to. I um, uh, And this is all... F- Generally, like, it works a little different for the Senate and for the House of Representatives. Like, in in the uh, Senate, you kind of, because it's, like, state-based, you kind of rank, you know, you've got multiple people from the same party there with House of Representatives, you vote for your local member. Uh, But in both scenarios, you cannot waste your vote. There's no such thing as wasting, you know. And it's legitimate concern. People are worried that, like, oh, if I don't vote for this major party that represents my interests... I could lose my vote giving it to someone I think might not uh, have a chance of winning, um, but is better closely aligned 
with me. Um, and that is because Australia has preferential voting. We're not the same as America. People love politics, love to be like, oh, Australia's terrible for all these other reasons, but we have preferential voting. So mm-hmm. it's, um, uh, it's meant to be so that, yeah, you can't waste your vote. It's meant to be more representative. Uh, how it works, um, and I know you guys know as well that this is a, uh, this, sorry. I oh, okay, sorry. <laughs> I think it's one of those things where you kind of, you have a basic understanding, but sometimes yeah. it's good to have a refresher. Yeah. Yes. And you get in those conversations with people and they're, they're really strong on like, no, it doesn't matter, two major parties, and then you like question all of your own yeah, beliefs. Yeah, you think you don't know. You need Chris <laughs> to kind of really unpack it on the sheets in the morning. That would, yeah, I can't, I cannot wait to meet this Chris who can explain it well. No, thank you. Um, yeah, no, that's, um, the, uh, yeah, so you can't, long story short, you can't waste your vote. If, for example, can I use party names or do I have to make some up? Um, maybe to be safe we should make them up. Okay, say so there is a, uh, I think there's, we talked about this cartoon recently, yeah, it's very funny. Yeah. There's one that's just like the Happy Hugs Party or whatever, <laughs> that like you think, you know, it's literally called something like that, right? Yeah. Like the the Happy Hugs Party and then there's the like... You know, there's the real bastards party, and then there's like the soft bastards party. And I think that you know, there's no real life allegories there, so don't worry about <laughs> any one that could be. But anyway, so say you're really worried about the real bastards getting in, and you're like, okay, I would love to vote for the happy hugs party, but uh, they don't have a chance. They don't have the wide support as the soft bastards party. You you don't lose anything. First of all. You don't lose anything by voting, but because we have preferential voting, you can put your top vote for the Happy Hugs Party, and then your second vote for the Soft Bastards Party, and then your third and fourth, you know, votes for the uh, the Real Bastards Party, and then I think the fourth one was like the crazy, crazy one. Uh, but the logic there is that in Australia you need, um, and this is for the House of Representatives. The Senate is a little different, which similar principles about preferential voting, but, like, you don't need... The Senate, you can get in on, like, 10% of a party. You know, it's kind of... It's a weird system, the Senate, to be honest. Um, but, it, yeah, it's still preferential voting there as well. But for the House of Reps, you need 50% to become the local member. You need over 50%. So, say the Real Bastards Party got, like, 40% of the vote. Uh, the Soft Bastards got, like, 35 and what's that all up? 70, is it 75? No. Yeah, 75. 75. So, <laughs> yeah. Like and then the, yeah, let's go 75. And then, so that means 25 for the soft party. The, you know, uh, the happy party, sorry. Happy hugs party. Um, and then that, so even though the real bastards party got the most, they haven't hit 50%. And because, you know, we're going to ignore the crazy one as well, just to save time. Um, so you put number one, you put your preferences for the happy hugs party, but because no one hit 50%, this they see has to get rid of the final party and go into preferences. The lowest scoring party go into preferences. So if all those people who gave uh, 25% to the Happy Hugs party, if they all voted two for the Soft Bastards party, it goes to them. Soft Bastards party now has thir- their original 35, the primary vote, plus the 25 from the Happy Hugs party. Usually it's distributed not that cleanly, but sake of argument, 25 plus 35 is 60. They've got, they've won. Ipso facto. That basically, all that is saying is that you, uh, first of all, you can't waste your vote. Second of all, you should vote for who you want to win because even if that happy hugs party didn't get, uh, even if they didn't get quite over the line, A, they get money 
out of they get Australian electoral funding uh, if they hit if they hit a certain point whatever percentage they get they get funding so that that means that this is why Pauline Hanson was so successful for so long even without having people in politics she got such a high turnout she got so many votes that she was earning money off those votes even if it didn't translate to uh, politicians second of all the soft bastards party going forward will need to be mindful that their preferences are coming from the happy hugs party they're like oh you know the happy hugs party wants to not torture people maybe we should look into that mm. like they'll they'll have to consider that like oh we should you know we can't go we got to be mindful of where this is coming from third and finally at a lot of the times those small parties are winning as well like that happy hugs party uh, you might think that they don't have a chance but a lot of these things are coming down to like neck and neck right yeah. now Australians never this is why it's so, so worried about Clive Palmer because it's so easy to a it's very easy to become a senator in Australia like if you have the money you can pretty much buy yourself your way in uh, but even for the House of Representatives, it's um, it's neck and neck in a lot of seats in Australia. There's, uh, you know, people who people who, and this is something that I'm not advocating one way or another because I don't understand it. But uh, I know the seat seat of Indy a few years ago, Kath, uh, independents right now are exploding. You know, look at what Dr. Karen Phelps did last year. She took over like the safest, like Malcolm Turnbull seat. That no nobody seriously like. Pollsters thought so, and we all the journalists dismissed him because they're like, that doesn't sound right. But she got like a 12% swing against uh, the Liberal Party, and that was like a safe Liberal seat. That's the swing she needed. She only got it by a whisker because it was so safe. <laughs> uh, but that was like, that's that she's an independent. She's yeah. like, she came in as like a soft conservative or whatever, but like, she got the seat, and that was like. Yeah. That's incredible. That's like, so yeah, these things do, your vote does matter. There is There are multiple reasons why you should use preferential voting. Uh, make sure you, yeah, make sure you mark as many as you can, like all seven if you go above the line. Uh, I try and go below the line because that's, it's, it's easier, but, um, no, not easier, but I, I, I prefer to anyway. Um, uh, and yeah, the Senate, ditto the Senate, like, Use all use all the boxes you can because it will preferences do count. Um, but also, yeah, there's this there's 2019 these things happen. I think it's really interesting how people often reinforce the status quo in terms of oh, but this party will win or this you know the way that people predict yeah. and kind of um, that goes against what you're saying around actually look if you look at smaller parties and independents they they are gaining power and they have. They have got seats when it seemed like that wasn't going to be likely. Yeah. So it is really interesting, kind of, I guess, that kind of return to the status quo, like, oh, no, but you just got to go for this. Like, the ways that people kind of just, like, push that as the prediction, I find that really interesting. Yeah, and I can see, I can see why, but it is a, um, yeah, it's not true in, this, in the current system, and it's, it's a, um, I mean, look at what Phelps has done since, I mean, she's been there for like six months and she already helped, it wasn't just her, obviously, but she helped pass she, the Medivac yeah. legislation. It's like what you can do, even if she's not the most powerful person with, you know, right now a combination of like independence, uh, I think it was like Center, Center Alliance, Nick Zenfon's old team, mm. the Greens, Labour, some other independents. Uh, they all did it against the sitting government. That's wild. Yeah. And Julie, when Julie Gillard was in, she was the most... The most effective prime minister, I think, in history. I'm not yeah, sure. Yeah, um, she was. Uh, and she did it with a hung parliament. She was just so good at negotiating with the crossbench that, like, she she got... Like, that was almost the best. A lot of people this time around are, are hoping for a hung parliament. 
because it means that the government will have to negotiate with smaller groups, mm. which seems kind of cool as well. Depends on what those smaller groups are, obviously, but it kind of adds a checks and balance system, so yeah. it can be really good. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, small parties, independents, uh, go for it if, you, <laughs> if that's what you want. Yeah. Perfect. Thank you, Chris. <laughs> it's good to, yeah, I think it's really good just to have a refresher of that information and also understand more of the details about how voting works. Yeah. So thank you for sharing all of that with us this morning. Thank you both so much. It's been such a, it's always such a pleasure. Um, <laughs> I hope it all made sense. Uh, I'm going off now to get the final seven hours of sleep for the day. <laughs> Very <Yeah>. crucial. The <laughs> <laughs> best part of the day. No, um, it's been such a delight. Thank you both. Thank so you. Much. See you, Chris. We Need to Pay the Rent is a fundraiser for Warriors of the Aboriginal Resistance featuring The Pretty Littles, Worst Nurse, Ute Root, No Sister, Face Face and a heap more. Come join us on Kulin Nation land to give back. It's well overdue. We Need to Pay the Rent. Saturday, May the 18th at the Tote from 4pm. Tickets $20. Available from the Tote website, thetotehotel.com. Free or discounted tickets for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Contact organisers online to arrange. A 3CR supporter. for human rights, indigenous sovereignty and climate justice. Our destination is Manus Island. Join us for the Freedom Flotilla. Sailforjustice.org. Get on board. A 3CR supporter. Hey, Melbourne's newest film festival is about to hit the screens. Now put this in your diary. The 26th to the 29th of April. The inaugural Biraranga Film Festival will showcase Indigenous films from across the globe. An incredible selection of feature films, shorts packages, conversations, and even virtual reality. Now, head to www.biraranga.world. That's B I R R A N G A dot world. And book your tickets. See you at ACME for the most exciting and global. Indigenous Film Festival right here in Melbourne. A 3CR supporter. That was Alice Skye's song, Melbourne. Um, next up, we've got... We are going to hear some audio that was done on the program Speaking Out. So this was an interview with CEO of the Creative Diversity Network from the UK, Deborah Williams, and she's been charged with the role of working towards achieving greater representation of diversity on screen. And so... You know, they talk about the fact that historically achieving adequate representation of minority groups on film and television has proven difficult. And there's been a 2016 report by Screen Australia 
screen Australia highlighting a lack of representation from people of non-Anglo-Celtic backgrounds, people with disabilities, and those identifying as part of the LGBTIQA plus community. So I think it's going to be a pretty interesting chat, and let's hear it now. ABC drama series Mystery Road or Miranda Tapsell in Redfern Now, Black Comedy and Clever Man are examples of the Australian public's willingness to embrace cultural diversity on our screens. Historically, though, achieving adequate representation of minority groups has proved difficult, with a 2016 report released by Screen Australia highlighting, among other things, a lack of representation of those from a non-Anglo-Celtic background, particularly with a disability and those identified as part of the LGBTQI plus community. As the CEO of the Creative Diversity Network UK, Deborah Williams has been charged with the role of working towards achieving greater representation of diversity on screen. Deborah has extensive experience with the creative arts sector, having undertaken groundbreaking work as a diversity manager at the British Film Institute, as well as serving as a senior officer for equity and diversity at the Arts Council England. Deborah, it's great to have have you on the program and in Australia. Ah, thank you. How did the Creative Diversity Network come about? In around about 2000, the UK broadcasters used to, it would start as the Cultural Diversity Network, so it was all about race and ethnicity. And they were sort of, every two years, they'd spend their time and within their own organisation doing diversity work and then at the end of it they do an award ceremony and then pass it on to another broadcaster. Around about 2015 they began to think about how to monitor and think about who is actually on television and making television. So they started the um, Creative Diversity Network which is the organisation I run which is a third sector sort of NGO type organisation. We're independent of them, we're a membership organisation but basically uh, we operate outside of any single one broadcaster so that's basically where we came from the fact that all major broadcasters were supportive and gave funding is that a sign that things are starting to become widespread in terms of change on this issue i think yeah i would say so and i think but also the will is also there and continues to be there you know we're a membership organization so they can if they feel like it relinquish their membership but um, as there are only five, you know, the five largest traditional broadcasters <laughs> in the UK, it would be really obvious if any one of them decided that they didn't want to be involved. So I don't know whether that's carrot or stick behaviour, but I, for what it is, I'm living with it now and travelling with it. But yeah, they do invest and they do take it seriously. And I think what we are doing now, though, is running, is trying to run a business. So it's less than, oh, it's something they should do because they think it's worthwhile or worthy. It's more about, well, how do you turn this into a business, into an organisation that could eventually become um, independent and extend its membership beyond the traditional spaces. Looking back on your own career, how did you navigate your way through the challenges you no doubt faced as someone who didn't fit the classic look that was so often seen on screens at the time? Uh, and now, look, sound, <laughs> uh, size, all of it. Um, I, I guess when I look back, and you know, I'm sort of hurtling towards a zero that we don't want to talk about. But as I look back, it's every time I hit a barrier, I would go, I'd find a way around it. So actually, my career and my path and getting to where I am now has been a sort of zigzag more than anything. So it's not actually been a straight road. And I think 
whilst I didn't understand that whilst I was doing it, now I look back at it and I, actually I, I appreciate that immensely because it meant that I was constantly learning. I would constantly bump into and work with people that I'd never anticipated working with and in areas I'd never anticipated working in. So it meant that when I did turn up and when I was producing and was making work, you know, on screen and or off screen or performing art spaces, that I was spreading a little bit of diversity without knowing it sort of thing. So that's that's the best I can I can offer I think. It was it was difficult, but it was very much of a zigzag, but each time I learned and each time I'd go back with something new. From your perspective, why do you think we've traditionally seen an underrepresentation of minority groups within the creative sector particularly on screen? Because people are scared, because people don't like looking at other, because there is an assumption that audiences won't pay for it. And the underlying word for that is discrimination and prejudice, obviously, but also institutions and systems and structures. And I think the way, especially television works, it is who you know, it is networks, and it is sort of where you've got your education and where you studied. So if within those spaces you already have low to no levels of people from minority groups um, or First Nations or others already, your starting point is going to be very low. So actually trying to get to good representation is going to be a long, long journey. I want to pick up on something you just mentioned a bit earlier, very fleetingly, but there is often an assumption that diversity relates only to culture and ethnicity. What do you think has led to that misconception and what are the other aspects in which diversity can be represented? I think it's... The misconception, I think, is because it was those groups were the the groups that were lobbying hardest. And if you look back over history, whether you go back to the 1930s, 1940s, 1950s, globally or locally, they were always the groups that were lobbying the hardest. And they were the groups that were the last to get. You know, I was looking at a map today of women's suffrage, and there were the women who were either Aboriginal, Indigenous, Black or African were all the last to get suffrage. Uh, So it's always been something that's existed within the space. I think the issue then becomes that 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 creates a hierarchy within diversity. And a lot of people think, well, if I get the top of the podium, I don't need to think about the rest of it. But so gender came behind that, I think, in many ways for a lot of people. And gender was quite easy because gender could take away from ethnicity and race. You could really focus on women who looked like you, but they were just women. So that was okay for a lot of people for a long time. I, you know, personally, I then think that the experience around disabled people and being a disabled person myself, it's been incredibly difficult. And it continues to be incredibly difficult with disability because you have so many impairments, so many conditions and so many different people within any group. And, you know, the term that people use now in the intersectionality, which, for the record, was about black women. (laughs) Let's not forget that. But a lot of people use that now to talk about the multiplicity of identity for all individuals. And I think that people like it to be really easy. So the messier it gets the more distant people make themselves. So if it's easy to talk about ethnicity and race and gender and try and go, okay, that's it, we can do that, and the rest of it is quite complex. People often feel a sense of guilt that they're merely a diversity hire. We often hear that from within our own community here, Indigenous community, and it's often something that within the workforces or in universities or wherever people are, they're often made to feel that you're here because you're a diversity hire. What advice would you give to somebody who's feeling that way? First of all, don't listen to what they're saying. That's the first thing. The second thing is know your craft. So know how good you are at what you do. 
and value that and celebrate it. And that can be within your work environment or workspace, or that can be without. I think sometimes it's very difficult if you are the only one to celebrate your achievements because people will hold that against you. But actually, if outside of those spaces you can celebrate what you achieve, then celebrate what you achieve because you may be the only one now and you may well be a diversity hire in some ways, but then you are also setting the tone for who comes behind you and and what the next diversity hire is. And also think about... Just because you're the only one there doesn't mean that you're the only one that ever has been there. There has usually been at least one or two people before you and they've maybe not succeeded or they've maybe found different ways to operate within the system. So operate within your own way. Pay no attention to these people because they don't really know what they're talking about and celebrate what it is you do. Great. You're very good at what you do. Great advice. Now, Deborah, you've been in Australia to deliver a keynote at the Fair Play Symposium in Melbourne, which was presented by Diversity Arts Australia. What was the aim of the event? The aim of the event was to start talking across diversity, so really starting to think about, um, in particular, First Nations voices and disabled people's voices within the diversity conversation and discussion. So it was quite a privilege, actually, and an honour to be asked to come and do a keynote and talk about all of that within the creative and cultural industries, which are small industries within themselves. But, of course, they have such a massive impact and and a massive impact on how people see themselves and how people are seen by others. From what you've seen during your stay, how does the Australian arts sector compare internationally in terms of diversity in arts? It's um, it's where the UK was like 20 years ago, which is quite. <laughs> which is, it's not it's not a bad thing. <laughs> That's not Probably a bad thing. We've got a long thing. way to go. <laughs> there's, there's still work, there's still there's still some work to be done. Let's put it that way. But I think more than anything, what the last couple of weeks has shown me is that there is a determination to grow and for progress. And there are people ready to take that next step and have the really challenging and awkward conversations and really start to think differently about what diversity is and how inclusive you need to make your diversity space so that as many people as possible are able to operate and be comfortable and safe within those spaces. Well, it's been wonderful having you in the country to get your perspective, which has such resonance for the issues here. What are the things about Australia that have really resonated with you? I've had a chance to reflect, which I've not had a chance to do for about three years in doing this job, because I've not really had time out away from it. Well, there's so, those long-haul flights, yeah. for starters. <laughs> yeah, those 14-hour those flights, mm, they're a joy. But I think more than anything, I think it's helped me really, really drill down into how I do things and the way that I do it being a lot different to the way other people do it and how to just keep encouraging others to think like that. Because watching hearing about so many different communities in Australia has helped me understand just how entrenched I am in some ways within the systems that I'm allowed to work within within the UK. So I'm going to go back and create a bit more trouble. So it's all your fault, basically. I love it. We love love creating troublemakers here on Speaking Out. It's been lovely to have you in the country and lovely to have you on the show this evening. Thank you so much. Thanks. Deborah Williams is the CEO of the Creative Diversity Network UK. And if listeners want to find out more on this issue, be sure to look up the Fair Play Project funded by the Victorian Government's Diversity and Inclusion. You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR and we just heard a fantastic interview that was done by Speaking Out on the ABC Um, and as I just mentioned it was Deborah Williams, the CEO of the Creative Creative Diversity Network in the UK. Mm. Deborah sounds 
amazing. Yeah, really cool. I think that that um that little interview was really really awesome. I I was uh watching NITV the other day, and it was uh it was a documentary on uh, indigenous films in the USA, and I found it so interesting. They had this like one one uh, I forgot his the actor's name, but he was like well known as being this like. Um, indigenous USA like actor this is the way that he um, portrayed himself he was in all the movies he had like all these like spirituality elements and things like that that he used to like show to lots of people and then they as they went on and on they were like actually um, at the time of this man's death he came out as being Italian and having no sort of indigeneity um, within uh, his culture and things like that, and but that was the main representation that they had at that time. So it's this Italian man that's, you know, I'm not sure of, of you know, all of his background and his culture and things like that. But it was, yeah, like the misrepresentations. I and think I is guess like so important. Yeah, and I guess that's that's such a common story mm. historically where we saw white people playing yeah. characters of colour on film and TV and that that was considered representation. And yeah. these, But the fact that that wasn't known to the public, I guess in these, like, some of these representations that I know that my mum has talked about, you knew that they weren't uh, mm. people of colour. Like, they were very obviously playing stereotypes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think that's one of the, that's one of the scary things. It's like people believed this person and people like saw this person as being being that representation but that person I mean I, I don't know all of their history and their understandings and their knowledge but that person wasn't that and mm. and that representation was lost and they went on to talk about in the documentary they went on to talk about really um amazing examples from um the USA from indigenous um directors and uh other filmmakers and things like that and there were some Films which I haven't yet to see, but there were like really great examples of like the Inuit culture up north. Um, I think it was a film called the Kite, uh, sorry, the Fast Runner, um, that just looked amazing. And when you see that sort of representation and the realness and like um, all the things that you just can't get unless it's a story told by the people, it just means so important. Mm. Yeah, and I guess that point about it's not just about having actors. No. that um, represent particular identities and experiences. It's, it's actually so crucial to have the people making whatever show or film it is represent those identities. Yeah. Well, like, like that means so much to have that because then you're bringing that authenticity and that genuineness, and that's, that's, a, that's a real experience. It's not someone trying to capture or tell someone else's mm. story. Mm. And they were saying, like, one of the main actors in, in the Fast Runner film, like, wasn't an actor. And he was doing these things on screen, like, that an actor wouldn't do and like he wasn't he was just a, a man from that area um and it was yeah I mean the the small snippets I saw of the film looked absolutely amazing and I mm. can't wait to actually go and have a look at it yeah yeah and then I guess in an Australian context we just had the that episode of Get Cracking mm. with um Miranda Tapsell and Nakia Louie which obviously makes so many important points and it's 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 I think really amazing the way that humor can be used to to really speak these truths about the issues of representation and just discussion of politics in relation to indigenous issues and movements, you know, but the jokes that they make in that episode around, um, you know, that, that you don't get to see First Nations people on a show in this format, it's just, 
like it's incredible the way that that message is portrayed through that mm. of humor. Yeah, and I think that's that's one of those important factors. Like you only ever see like one depiction. Like it has to be like a very serious. We're talking about our issues, and we're very serious. But then you miss all the complex like elements of being a human, like of all like laughing and. I don't know, like humor and things like that. Like you just miss those factors, and then we only get this like one very homogenized like view of what what indigeneity is or what you know uh, different cultures are. And, and and for people with disabilities and stuff like that, you only mm. get one image of what it is. Mm. Um, which is why um, what Deborah was talking about before is so so important. Like it's ah, uh, yeah, yeah. It shouldn't be that hard, and it shouldn't still have to be a conversation that we need to have. No. And I guess and um, Deborah was touching on that. The, the sort of differences in terms of what diversity actually means and which particular groups are sort of allowed entry into mainstream mm. spaces in the media. And the way in which they are as well. Yeah. yeah, and I guess we've had, and it's something that you would know a bit about in terms of your um, your work and your knowledge around um, disability politics, mm. but just in terms of representation of people with disabilities on yeah. the screen is obviously something that there still yeah. needs to be so much change yeah. there. Yeah, definitely. And I think, you know, um, uh, people with disability in the media and things like that often talk about the, the porn, the... The, um, the tragedy porn? Yeah. yeah. And that kind of like, yeah, um, for those who don't know, it's just like basically... Um, congratulating people for doing everyday things with people with disabilities who like don't want that they're just like living their lives they're like you know so I can't say for everyone some people might you know feel really a lot of um uh, a lot of pride in doing those things but on a scale on a larger scale it is it's just like a bit demeaning um and I see it yeah when I'm at work with certain people and it's like oh wow that person's doing this thing and you're like just no yeah, and so the way that actually isn't just something that happens in the media; it feeds out into the ways that people interact with other people mm. in society. Like mm. if that's the kind of the representation is, if you're someone with a disability and you can just do the everyday thing, then people say you're an inspiration, and that you know, like the things that Sally Young talked about, and yeah. in the ways that people do that in day-to-day life, and they speak about people's experiences. Yeah, in well, that I th- way. I think they both just play into each other, like. Um, very, very much. I think, yeah, a lot of the things that happen within the media and are just happening in everyday life for, the, for obviously marginalised communities and things like that. So um, it'd be great if the media could get to a point where they were representing things accurately and there was, like, um, people from backgrounds actually making films uh, or media or talking about news stories from their own experiences rather than rather than someone talking... Um, about it for them, which is an obvious an obvious construct, but not uh, an obvious theory, but yeah, not put into practice at all. Mm. Oh, I guess we are seeing some changes there, but yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I mean, on a larger scale, I feel like there's probably like not as much. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, and then I guess it also comes back to which specific groups and identities are you talking about? Yeah, you know, of course. Yeah. Like we've seen a lack of representation of, say, like women, for example, historically, but we've seen massive pushes around that. Yeah. Um, but that's not necessarily the case for, you know, all groups that haven't been represented. Yeah. And then you get, you know, the same power dynamics feeding into, um, feeding into uh, why women. women yeah. yeah. Like which women, you know, are they able bodied? Are they white? Are they Anglo? Are they whatever? Like those sorts of women might be, you know, but that's not enough. And that is 
like obviously list amazing people, amazing, amazing uh, just like directors and like doing really, really great things. Um, I can't think of any this morning, unfortunately, <laughs> but yeah, um, the representation is coming about, but that, you know, good enough isn't always good enough, so it'd be great if it could be more recognised. Yeah, and then in the mainstream. Yeah, in the mainstream, definitely. My name is Ruby Sizenmouth. My pronouns are they You're listening and to 3CR Radical Radio, and that was Binday with Stella, Rosie and Claudia on... Hello, I'm Liz Ride. Welcome to Are You Looking At Me and International Day for People with Disability. Today on the show, we meet Trish Maloney and Frank Corbenti, Did you miss our 12-hour special broadcast for International Day of People with a Disability? Radical Disabled programmers discuss the NDIS, Aboriginal rights, creativity, youth access, financial security, parenting, LGBTIQ, intersections and so much more. Head to 3cr.org.au forward slash Disability Day 2018 and listen back anytime. Our broadcasters present over a hundred radio programs every week, including a diverse range of community language shows. Come to our Trisia Community Radio. Please subscribe now. تستمعون إلى Community Radio الرجاء الاشتراك الآن. نينغل لونغلين سموها وانولي تريسياري كرت كوندير كنديركال. رينري Suscríbete ahora. Netsuk Ketsek Radio I Gayaranin, Horatain Gudam Elbumi Hai Kaotin, Hima Artsanakrevetsek Ipertrisiari Antam. Support the station that gives your community a voice. Subscribe to 3CR. You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR. It's 7 past 8 o'clock, and we have some amazing. Talented, beautiful guests with us in the studio. We're glowing. <laughs> Hi. Hello. We've got MV and James McKenzie, both of which work on In Your Face. Yeah. At 3CR, the longest running queer... Longest program? running queer show in the country in the on country. radio, going since 92, I believe. I've only been doing it since 97. Uh, <laughs> incredible. Only then. Oh, only. Come on. That's you what, celebrated, like, years. was it, um, how many years? 20 21 years, years last year or something. Last year, yeah, something yeah. ridiculous like that. That's I couldn't amazing. believe it. Yeah. That is, yeah. I can't imagine. Well, being. it's all because of the amazing people who have been on it, like MV and Jackie Brown <laughs> and Yvette Keane and Rod Swift and all of the guests. Yeah, yeah. Amazing. But I'm really excited about QR Code, which is why we're here. Yes. Thank you for joining us today. And I should mention, uh, before we do get started, that I am also involved with this podcast that we will be talking about. Yeah. It's an important disclaimer there. Yeah, that's no, amazing. And also Anya. So it's really great. Yes. So there's like a, a whole nice uh, cross... Ah, cross-flow of um, amazing broadcasters that are going to be presenting this eight-part series on queer health. 4.30 uh, Fridays, the last Friday of every month. 
Now, look, I've just got to say, it's about queer health, and it's really timely we're here today, because apparently Bill Shorten's announcing today that if elected, Labor will ban conversion therapy nationally. Now, I'm not sure how it's going to work, because they're going to need the approval of the state governments, because yeah. uh, it comes under state jurisdiction. So does it mean the states will cede their powers in that regard to the Commonwealth Government? And how's the Christian lobby going to react? You know, I'm sure Lyle Sheldon's running around this morning saying stuff or will be. And then, of course, they're also saying that they're going to amend the Fair Work Act uh, to be in line with the Greens policy, which would prevent uh, religious schools from discriminating against queer teachers and students. Wow. So the Greens have been saying they should do that, and they are. So conversion therapy, LGBTIQ issues are now an election issue. That's huge. That's yeah. really huge. So it is timely that this podcast series is coming up it's because things like James have said really um, impact on the queer community, impact on us and you know our friends and families. Like I was at a talk recently where Ro Allen, um, who is the commissioner for uh, for gender and sexuality stuff, um gave their um, experience of going through conversion therapy and the issues and the ongoing trauma that that has been for them over the last few years and something that doesn't go away. I mean, we had Simon Ruth, who was a, who is the CEO of Thorn Harbour Health, talking about his religious upbringing and how they instill the the idea and the notion that homosexuality or, or queerness in general is an abomination and a sin and how that itself, in a really broad term and in a really broad sense, can be um, viewed as conversion therapy as well because it's really sort of pounded in you Definitely. that being gay or lesbian or queer or trans is is a sin. So it's it's latent, but it's definitely there. So, yeah, it's... It's a really huge, great announcement. huge health impacts on people Definitely. going through conversion therapy. I mean, imagine the trauma of it. Well, what does it mean to carry that, that those ideas of shame that are being basically drummed into you? You know, how do you how do you shake that? Exactly, especially when we've got a current prime minister who just a few months ago said conversion therapy wasn't an issue for him. He said it was a state issue. Uh, how is this going to play out during the campaign considering, you know, his religious beliefs? Now, I know he's tried to separate his personal religious beliefs from his politics, and I think generally he's done an okay job of doing that, but this is just opening that right up, mm. you know? So is this going to be a really divisive issue during the final weeks of this campaign? Mm. Which, and I guess that brings up other issues in terms of, you know, obviously comparing it to the marriage equality survey and the ways that, like, the toxic media discourse was actually having an impact on people's day-to-day lives. Oh, absolutely, and splitting families and all of that. Absolutely. So, yeah. So, QR code. QR code. You're doing the first episode. I am doing the first episode, yeah. Going to air this Friday on 3CR, 4.30. What's it about? So, (laughs) you're interviewing me now. (laughs) That's great. I love this. (laughs) So, the first episode is centered on issues of mental health and people's experiences of mental health in the context of being queer. Um, And what does it mean in terms of these structural factors, you know, kind of really relates to what we're just talking about now, these issues that impact people's day-to-day lives and they impact their mental health and, and the fact that we need to keep having these conversations around queer people and mental health because it's it doesn't go away, you know. Like, obviously, this isn't a new topic. Like, it's something that probably you were probably talking about on In Your Face, you know, 10 years ago. Always comes up, doesn't Always it? Always comes up. 
but it's still it's ever changing and there are different political issues that are kind of feeding into people's you know personal lives so it's sort of about telling stories and sharing information about people's personal experiences and then having those guests also contextualized contextualize that information you know, what does that mean in terms of bigger political structural factors so that's yeah that's the basic. What, what, a, what I know you're taking a mental health approach. Was what was it based on anything else? I feel like there was something else part of your your brief for that particular podcast. Um, was it like it was patriarchy? Yeah, patriarchy. Oh patriarchy. yeah, definitely. So looking at looking at structures of the cis heteropatriarchy, but also uh, two of my guests identify as people of color. So there's also you know what does it mean not only to be a queer uh, queer person but also to be um, a person of colour and the intersections of those two and what does that mean in terms of family dynamics mm. so Nadine Chamali who's one of the guests she spoke about what does it mean to be an Arab queer wo- wo- woman and her background and um, Ruja Mehdi was another guest um, who many listeners will know she's um, a human rights and senior justice campaigner for Get Up and Colour Code incredible person she talked about um, having a Muslim grandmother as her upbringing and what that meant even though she doesn't, um, she doesn't identify as religious now, like that, that history and that upbringing, what does that mean in terms of, for her, what it meant for coming out, like all of those kinds of um, personal experiences. So, yeah, not just about queerness, but other aspects of people's identity. Like the intersections where culture and religion intersect with sexuality and gender identity and yes. all that stuff. It's a yeah. minefield. Definitely. There's so much to talk about, and that was really hard. I think it's probably going to be similar for, for all of us with every episode is there is so much in people's stories and so much that's relevant to talk about, and you've got to capture that in a little half-an-hour episode. You know, it's it's massive. Yeah, I've been thinking about that as well. Um, how do you capture, and how do you capture all the voices that you want? I mean, it's it's great, you know, and uh, we've been funded for eight half-hour series. Thank you. City of Yarra. But it's like, there's limited time to be able to capture all those voices. So I feel like there needs to be a part two. But anyway, we haven't done mm. part one yet. But it's just, <laughs> how do you capture all the voices that make up the, the queer community? You know, LGBTIQIA+. I mean, there's, you know, there's not enough episodes to fit that acronym. There's not enough letters. I can't keep up with the letters. Like, I only found out the other day. I, I just assumed, you know, ever since that Kathy Griffin episode where she goes on from the LGBTIA community and they go, what's A and she goes allied I assumed it was allied but MV was saying no it's asexual Mm. so I do a queer show and (laughs) I can't even keep up with it (laughs) it's ever evolving and I suppose that's (laughs) that's interesting because one of the one of the topics that I've thought I would discuss is the the use of language especially academic language within queer circles and how that can other people and I thought that would be interesting I mean it's not set until for later on in the year so that could change but I'm really interested as a person that does a queer show and a person that works at such a dynamic station like 3CR you'd think I'd be you know in tune with the language that we use but um, the queer language is ever evolving and it's always ongoing and I feel like a lot of people get left behind who don't have access to education yes. or mm. access to queer communities and academia that we do. I mean, we're very fortunate to work and volunteer here because we have access to so many people here, but mm. a lot of people don't for various reasons. So um, I made a segue, but that was a topic that I'm really interested in. And 
it's a topic that my friends and I continually talk about. I mean, you know, being in my early 40s now, like, you know, we're always like... I thought you were going to say early 30s, MV. <laughs> Thanks. And you don't look a day over 26. <laughs> Very sweet. But, you know, it, is, just, just to make yeah, a joke, it's yeah. like, what are the young kids saying these days? And yeah. it's true. They speak and a different language, don't they? They do. So, yeah. That yeah. Is, I think that's really important and also a really crucial reminder for us that I think, you know, for me personally, and I imagine it might be similar for, for all of us, your education comes from 3CR in so many ways because of those connections. And so that is really crucial, I guess, if you, if you don't have those connections and you're, and you're queer, where, where can you access information that is accessible and Absolutely. in a way that, can, you know, that is, is understandable to you and your own lived experiences? Yeah. yeah, I think that is a really important topic to be... Because 3CR is an intersections hub. It's not just an activist hub, it's an intersections hub. So if you don't have those intersections in your personal life away from 3CR, chances are you'll find one of them at 3CR. But a lot of people just don't have that in the LGBTIQ community. And, of course, isolation is a huge issue, and that's one of the biggest issues and impacts on queer health, not just mental health, but also the effects physically that it has on people. That is, I mean, that, that came up in my episode, but I think that that's going to be something that cuts across a lot of our topics is, yeah, the importance of queer communities and what that means in terms of mental health or understanding, you know, and the, how pervasive people's experiences of feeling isolated are. Um, you know, that is just such an important topic for us to be discussing. Totally. And isolation comes at you at waves in your life. Like you can have periods of your life where you're connected to the community and then you, 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 you know, you've got those, those connections, those intersections, those networks, and then stuff happens in your life and you no longer have that. And so you can find yourself having to rebuild mm. and get connected and break down that isolation all over again. Coming out's not just at one point in your life, it's yeah. over many. That's what yeah. I've found anyway. Yeah. True story. Yeah, true story. <laughs> and James, can you tell us about some of the episodes that you're going to Well, I really want to do one on sex work because it's a campaign that's happening in the community. Uh, there's a there's a real push here in Victoria for not just the decriminalisation, full decriminalisation of sex work, but also for uh, peer support among sex workers to receive government funding. Now, I found out a few months ago that Victoria was the first place in the world to fund peer support for sex workers really? when we had what was called the Prostitutes Collective here in Victoria. Now, that wow. got defunded during the Kennett era and has never been replaced. So that got me thinking, well, hang on a second, you know, you've got an industry that's decriminalised, so sex workers don't have the same industrial rights as other workers, they don't have the same health and safety rights, for example, and then there's not even funded peer support for them. So how is all of that going to impact on their health? Mm. And then, of course, we've found out by having the wonderful Jane Green from the Vixen Collective on In Your Face many times over the last 12 months talking about these issues, um, yeah, it's, it's just, it's just such a full on issue. Uh, and she says that 60%, over 60% of sex workers in Victoria and nationally are queer. Really? That's high. I did not, yeah. I was not aware of that. Me I either until that. just recently. Yeah. 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 I just want to say wow. But also, James, <laughs> <clears throat> also in relation to, I mean, because we have been, um, covering sex work quite a lot, a lot. On, in your face and uh, just recently you um, also interviewed Denton Denton Calendar yeah and, from and Kirby he, yeah Kirby yeah. Institute and they did or oh, he did um, a research or a study on um, male 
male sex, sex workers, workers yeah. including um, trans, uh, trans yeah. non-binary um, yeah. sex workers that identified on the male spectrum. Which wasn't an intention of the study, but they just discovered these, these non-binary uh, trans men who were sex workers uh, and got their stories, which apparently had never been done before in terms of male sex worker research anywhere in the world. Wow. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So lots Incredible. of stories that lots need to be stuff. told. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. So how can, I mean, we've already touched on it, but just to reiterate, how can listeners check out this new podcast? Yes. Uh, so queer, quick, quick, oh my God, <laughs> QR code mornings, uh, QR code. So it's happening this Friday. Uh, so that's April the 26th at 4.30. So it's going to be in the in your face time slot. Uh, George, yours would be the first podcast, and people can listen to, um, well, listen back or listen to the podcast uh, via 3cr.org.au forward slash QR code, and also follow us on Facebook, yes. which is at QR code. And 3CR. funded by the city of Yarra, goes for eight months, so it's the last Friday of every month on In Your Face at 4.30 until November, uh, with four of us doing two episodes each spread out over those yeah. eight months. A lot so of content. A lot of content. <laughs> and also just thanks to um, Tishan um, Ahern and also Juliet Fox for, you know, being our production assistant managers and just getting this whole amazing yeah. series so together. So it was actually really Juliet's idea. Yes, it was. It was all her idea. Angel. She got us to help her with the funding submission. She basically is the driving force yeah. behind all these amazing uh, funded projects that we do at 3CR. So and, supportive. of course, yeah, all the volunteers and staff that assist her. But she's our grants guru. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So we're very fortunate. We're very fortunate to be approached, and we're so fortunate that, um, you know, us four get to work together on this amazing series. So also thank you for having us on this thank morning. Thank you for joining It's really, really sweet of you. It so is gorgeous. we actually, I had too much content from the, my guests, um, which is just, you can imagine. Um, but so I've put together a five-minute um, little thing of Nadine Chamali because she sp- spoke about so many incredible topics. Not all of them were specific to my topic, but this is her speaking about motherhood as a queer wo- woman and issues of representation as well. I think I do connect with a lot of queer people. Um, I surround myself with a lot of queer people or queer friendly people, people who understand who I am. Sometimes I forget that Queer acceptance doesn't exist. That's how much I try to surround myself with that positive queer environment. Um, I think it's increasingly becoming more acceptable and, and more normal. Um, I love seeing the number of people around me that identify as queer or queer friendly. Um, yeah, I do surround myself with a lot of queer people. Even, you know, my interactions on Twitter, there's this real thrill of clicking on someone's profile and seeing you know, queer, whatever it is, queer migrant, queer trans man, queer, you know, whatever, queer cis man, there is this kind of immediate kinship with other queers that we, that, yeah, makes me feel safe and secure knowing that there's going to be generally an immediate acceptance of who I am. Um, yeah, absolutely. I think that surrounding myself Sometimes I joke that I live inside my queer bubble, that I forget that there is a lot of hatred and a lot of ugliness out there. Um, but, you know, yeah, that's a coping mechanism. It certainly is. Yeah, mm. yeah that seems like quite a common thing amongst queers in terms of that, yeah, getting that understanding. I'd like to ask you about 
motherhood actually and what that's been like and kind of if there's some links in terms of I don't know I don't know where to start but you know how how old is your child yeah so um my kid has just turned seven right um motherhood as a queer person is actually really lovely because children don't really care about sexuality they don't care about queerness they don't care about I identity in that sense they're not defined by these boundaries that society creates so I've got this really cool little mate at home that I'm just like hey I'm doing this today and he's like yeah cool um you know okay you're going to hang out with a woman or a man or a you know whoever it is you have this little buddy at home that's kind of just cool with whatever you want to do so for my personal acceptance that's been really nice um and knowing that I'm influencing another young little person to do their own thing and be who they want. Um, I often talk to queer friends, you know, and I say to them, it's really exciting knowing that my son will grow up looking up to you and you're kind of paving this way for him. Um, The work we're doing now is making it easier for kids who come after us. And I think that's a really big part of queer identity for me is this constant work that we are doing by being visible. I know for a lot of people that can be really exhausting and I think it's really important to take time out from having to be visible all the time. But for those that um, enjoy it, I think there's a real beauty to knowing that I have a little kid at home who is going to appreciate, hopefully, what I do one day. Um, Yeah. Are there any more questions about motherhood? I love talking about motherhood. (laughs) Um, Um, Yeah, no, it's... It's um, it's like it sounds like you've got like your biggest fan and possibly biggest queer ally or maybe queer one day. Who knows? Yeah. <laughs> well, I hope. I mean, you know, that's the fear of, of well, heterosexual cis people, isn't it? That we're going to raise our children queer. Um, <laughs> and, um, I'd like to tell them that yes, we are. Um, no, I mean, look, he can be whoever he wants to be growing up, but. I certainly hope that if he grows up queer or a queer ally, um, that's something that would make me really, really happy. I would certainly encourage him as he gets older and starts dating to explore the spectrum and find what's right for him. Um, you know, even whether he wants to be a he, that's, that's totally up to him. Um, and I think that creating that accepting environment, and certainly if he wants to be straight and he wants to be cis, high five, buddy, that's the easiest way forward I think in, in the world generally, good for you. Um, that, that's the norm. But if he doesn't want to be that, then, yeah, he, he has this really great supportive community of aunties and uncles and they's that he can turn to and um, be a part of. Yeah. Queer is a lovely community. That, that's the bottom line. You know, as a general rule, they're really good people. Um, kids are really accepting and understanding. And, yeah, that's all I would really say about it. That's cool. I like that. That's a good way to end, I think. Um, Thank you so much. Hey, Melbourne's newest film festival is about to hit the screens. Now put this in your diary. The 26th 
to the 29th of April. The inaugural Biraranga Film Festival will showcase Indigenous films from across the globe. An incredible selection of feature films, shorts packages, conversations, and even virtual reality. Now, head to www.biraranga.world. That's B-I-R-R-A-R-A-N-G-A.world. And book your tickets. See you at ACME for the most exciting and global Indigenous Film Festival right here in Melbourne. A 3CR supporter. In December 2017, Tanya Day, proud Yorta Yorta woman and much-loved member of the Aboriginal community, was travelling by train to Melbourne. When V-Line staff found her asleep, they called Castlemaine Police and she was removed from the train and charged with public drunkenness. Tanya died 17 days later as a result of head injuries sustained while in custody. This would never have happened had the recommendations of the 2001 Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody been implemented. Tanya Day's family is calling for the crime of public drunkenness to be abolished and for the implementation of genuine community health alternatives to incarceration. Please add your support by signing the petition at 3CR Reception, 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy, or online by entering Tanya Day Petition into your browser. You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR with myself, George. I've had Amelia in the studio with me as well. Thank Thanks you for, for having being here. Me. Thank you. <laughs> um, we'd like to thank all of our guests today, MV and James McKenzie from In Your Face, talking about our new podcast, QR Code. Thanks for having us. <laughs> and also to Chris Woods, crikey mm. reporter, amazing, incredible human, doing so much important journalistic work, and we really value their input every Tuesday with our headlines. We will see you next Tuesday. Thanks for tuning in this morning.